The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Labour has never done well in a UK election without doing really well in Scotland. We need deposit ATMs and we need withdrawal ATMs and we need a law that means that businesses have to accept cash. UK workers have had the most bargaining power essentially since the 1970s because the jobs market is so tight. Can Britain actually afford to maintain a global military presence? You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Ewan Potts. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Welcome to the programme. Now, my Google history isn't something that you should look at at the Bastard Times, but this morning I honestly found myself looking to see if Mercury was in retrograde because I... The, it, basically everything that's happened in Westminster in the past 24 hours this stage, it sort of feels like there's either something in the water that everyone's been drinking or there's something that's happened like there, there, we did have a new moon I also checked this we did have a new moon earlier in the week uh, but not a full moon have, I don't know if this actually helps to explain we have happened. all the facts on this show don't we <laughs> <laughs> Mercury is not in retrograde that is someone else to blame for your problems and there is a new moon but I don't think that's actually supposed to change anything cosmically I think I think what's unusual is, is this is nuts going on in, in both parties isn't it which doesn't tend to happen at the same time So the, in the Tories you know Rishi Sunak is obviously trying to risk Sussex's plan to deport asylum seekers to Rwanda after that Supreme Court ruling yesterday and his efforts not enough for a group of right-wing MPs who are submitting letters of no confidence uh, in the PM and Keir Starmer is facing his own troubles isn't he over over Labour yeah, that's could be in fact the most tricky issue he's faced as leader so far. So eight Labour frontbenchers forced to leave their roles after openly defying the party leader to back calls for a ceasefire in the Israeli Hamas war. In total, more than fifty Labour MPs voted against their whip in Parliament yesterday. Well, let's make sense of all of this with Bloomberg's UK political editor Kitty Donaldson. Now, Kitty, what's it been like down at Westminster? It's been very 2016 in the sense that um, all the Brexit wars have you know come out into the open again um and it's been interesting on both sides actually because the the labor are fighting just as much as the tories which makes a change actually <laughs> how how mad are people how febrile is it when you think about the i mean look because i felt like it's at one stage yesterday it was almost like playing a game of guess who with the with labor because yeah. that it seemed like we were ticking down so many names that were were deciding to yeah. to go against the leader yeah, absolutely. And I was standing in members' lobby, which is the bit of uh, that journalists are allowed to stand in just outside the House of Commons chamber, watching watching the whips go backwards and forwards, grabbing people, saying Labour whips. This is saying, you know, which way are you voting? And and I was chatting to some of them, and they were saying, you know, the number of resignations is going up, it's going down, it's going up, it's going down. I'm not quite sure what's going to happen. And that was, but I think by the afternoon they they realised they were in some serious trouble. Um, with, as you say, around 50 voting against and eight front benches who've, who've effectively quit or were sacked. I think it's slightly moot point as to which way around it was, but they knew, these front benches knew that if they voted with the SNP on this motion, they would be out on their ear. How troubling is this Is this really for, for Keir Starmer? Do, do you think he's he's genuinely concerned about this or does he think it will it will blow over and the, and the, the polling will prove to be correct? I think you need to look at this in terms of where he is in the polls. So Starmer is 20 points ahead in the polls and he's trying to look like he's a prime minister in waiting. And therefore, 
because he's so far ahead, there is a kind of safety net for Labour MPs to express an, an ideological view without necessarily denting Keir Starmer's uh, standing in with the public. Um, so he kind of wins both ways on this. But even saying that, it's, it's, it's an example of some of the challenges he'll face from his party if he wins power next year. Things have been relatively calm in Labour since Keir Starmer took over. We haven't seen this, certainly this scale of rebellion against his party's position. And, and what about these people that have quit the quit the front bench? Do you expect some or most of them to be back in six months' time? Uh, I don't know about six months, but I yes, they'll they'll be back. I mean, it's not as if sort of they've rebelled on something trivial. I suspect a place will be found for them after a suit of, suitable period of reflection. Um, talents like Jess Phillips, uh, Starmer will definitely want her back on the side. Kitty, if we think then about what's happening with the Tories, um, stories of no confidence letters, is this on the scale, on the Kitty Donaldson scale of political tumult within the Conservative Party, where does this rank? I think we're at about a seven at the moment, because... It's quite high. What happened yesterday, quite, quite high, but it, it sort of goes up and down a bit. It's a bit like a kind of um, barometer, um, depending on the pressure, depending on the day, depending on, you know what the Prime Minister just said. Actually, yesterday was a kind of interesting point. So so the, the, the Supreme Court ruled at about 10. By 11, I got word that the Tories were meeting in the committee corridor. So I scuttled down there to kind of find out what they were talking about. And they were absolutely livid. You know, they came out. Uh, Lee Anderson said, oh, no, they should just ignore um, the ruling and put people on planes, put asylum seekers on planes tonight. Um, others were saying the Prime Minister's lost control of the party, lost control of the agenda. This is ridiculous. I'm going to go and put a letter into Graham Brady. That would prompt a leadership contest. Um, I think by... And then at PMQs at, at lunchtime, Sunak stood up and said, oh, we're going to have this treaty, which kind of calmed things down a, bit, a little bit because they were like, oh, OK, he's doing something about it. But they were saying a treaty won't work. It will just be subject to judicial review once it's you know, gone through the House of Commons. I mean, the point about a treaty is that you can do it, <clears throat> excuse me, you can do it relatively quickly. You can do it within 42 days. Um, but then it might get held up in the courts and have to go back through all the process again and back up to the Supreme Court. So that could hold it up. Um, and so so MPs were saying we need this thing called a notwithstanding motion or a notwithstanding bill. And and that basically means we just need, we need a piece of paper that says we could ignore what, what the Supreme Court says. Um, and then when Sunak stood up um, at the press conference later in the afternoon and he had that kind of fire in his eyes and the kind of sort of, it was like his most sort of silverback gorilla moment. I've seen him like proper Tory, like, you know, can he do it? That's what the Tory MPs were saying. Can he do it? Can he be a proper Tory? And then he said, yeah, we're going to legislate. We, we are absolutely going to legislate to to say that Rwanda is a safe country and that we can send asylum seekers there. I mean, the problem with this, of course, is that if you legislate, even if he gets it through the Commons where he's got a majority, it's, it's more than likely that the Lords will hold it up. And if the Lords hold it up, you have to kind of resort to the Parliament Act, which is when it goes back, backwards and forwards like a ping pong ball between the two houses. And that, that takes a year. And if your overall aim is to get a flight with some asylum seekers, you know, off the tarmac at Heathrow, back to Rwanda by the election, then it's just looking incredibly unlikely at this point. And that's what Tory MPs are going around saying today, saying we need to see the detail of the bill, how quickly will it work, mm. you know. But in terms of messaging, I think, for that constituency of MPs, the kind of um, 
pro-Brexit. Some of them call themselves the common sense group. Some of them, some of these are the kind of ERG, I think yeah. the Brexit days, European research group. It's a kind of, kind of collective ragbag of, of, of the right of the party, basically. So he's signaling to them that he's prepared to do it. And they sort of, they don't all represent red wall seats, but they represent a, a type of direction that got um, Boris Johnson his majority in 2019. And and the, what people have been saying earlier this week, so getting very mixed signals from Sunak because he, you know, he sacks Vela Brabman, mm. who represented that constituency of MPs, even if they didn't all agree with her. And then he brought back David Cameron, who's kind of seen as this sort of centrist. So everyone was, you know, he's gone from, from dropping net zero targets at the conference a few weeks ago. So, you know, right, right wing Sunak to kind of, centrist Sunak, bringing back David Cameron, sacking Sola Bravman, back to right-wing Sunak again. Um, and some of the MPs are comparing him to a shopping trolley, kind of, you know, out of control politically. Some, uh, I spoke to an MP this week who, who called him a yacht, you know, tacking from left to right. Um, oh, I so thought there's a bit of confusion. that was a compliment or not. <laughs> exactly. Uh, no, I, it wasn't meant as a compliment. Let's, let's put it that way. It, it was sort of like, they were saying we don't know who he is, what he stands for. So okay. the kind of red-blooded Tory tonight yesterday, will, will that change again? Will we get something more moderate next week? No one seems to know. Kitty, I want to ask you to kind of compare these two rebellions. Which of the two parliamentary groups is more miserable at the moment? But I want to add an extra challenge here. Can you kind of seasonally adjust it, as they say in economics? Can you kind of adjust it for the polling? Because obviously Labour are generally happier than the Tories at the moment. There's a sort of there's two sets of Tories. One, one set who are kind of a bit um, ostrich-like and who think they can actually turn things around and it'll be fine. And they may not win big next year, but they will still win, which seems a bit bonkers when you look at the polls. Um, so there's that kind of tribe. But most of the Tories are quite miserable. They think they've lost. To be honest, they think this is the dying days of 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 Rome. So they might as well go out with a bang. Um, Labour are more cheerful, definitely, and every time they sort of talk to each other, they say, don't be complacent, don't be complacent, because um, electoral mass is stacked against them. So they have to do extra specially well to win a majority um, compared to the Tories. So uh, I would say Labour, yes, cheerful, but not cheerful over the Gaza issue. Does that mean, Kitty, that we should expect a lot more fibrillity from the Conservative Party between now and the next election, if if there are so many that have the sense that this is essentially the last days anyway? Yes. Until recently, I, I thought that, that Rishi Sunak was safe in post until the election, that there was no serious challenger. Um, and I think the way that Suella Braverman's behaved this week shows that there's no no obvious contender. Most most Tories are talking about, after the election, what happens next, whether Kemi Badenoch should... Um, sorry, Kevin Badenoch lead the the party, or whether there's a space for Suella to come back and be the standard bearer for the right wing. No one's really talking about challenging Sunak before the election, but that doesn't mean it won't happen. It, I suspect the grumblings will get louder and louder rather than any actual action, because even 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 the kind of most headbangery Tories know that to change leader now would be just disastrous electorally. You're basically handing Labour another 10 points in the polls if you do that. Okay, Katie Donaldson, our UK political editor, thank you very much.
Well, let's get more analysis now with Rob Ford, Professor of Political Science at the University of Manchester. Rob, thanks for joining us on the show today. Now, these two party management problems are very different, aren't they? Uh, yes, yes, they are. Um, uh, the, the Conservatives uh, basically face a major issue uh, on their right, uh, which uh, 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 is a pretty big chunk of their party uh, and concerns a central plank uh, of um, their kind of, uh, of Rishi Sunak's electoral strategy or governing strategy in terms of his five pledges, uh, Labour. Uh, face uh, a big argument, uh, which is primarily uh, within their activist base, and where there's really much less evidence uh, that the issue is resonating more broadly with their, their actual or potential voters. What about then that, that if we dig a bit into what's been happening in the Labour Party, how worried should Keir Starmer be about the rebellion that we saw? Um, well, electorally speaking, not very. Um, we ha- don't see any evidence that this has made any impact at all uh, in the general opinion polls. Indeed, three different pollsters have registered uh, the highest Labour lead since Liz Truss um, was uh, Prime Minister in the last few days. Nor is there much evidence that this is having an impact in the Muslim community thus far. Uh, we have the first representative poll of Muslims conducted since the row over Gaza within Labour began, and that also shows no evidence of any substantial shift uh, against Labour amongst Muslim voters. So there isn't an electoral concern here, but of course that's not the only concern that you have when you're a party leader, and there clearly is a party management concern. This issue deeply uh, concerns uh, a lot of uh, Labour MPs, um, uh, and you know we've seen a number of resignations reflecting the depth of feeling there. It deeply concerns an awful lot of Labour activists and members, uh, and so the kind of current dispute does present problems within the kind of Labour tent rather than electorally. Do you find that polling surprising, Rob? I was actually looking at the numbers myself and, and, and that, that Salvation poll had Labour on 65% or near enough. And then 20% for the Tories, of course, who also uh, uh, take, take the, 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 the wrong view, if you like, uh, for, for Muslim voters. Are you surprised given the noise on social media, the massive marches? Why isn't this feeding through into the polling? Because those things are not representative of public opinion. Frankly, I'm surprised that people find this surprising. Uh, we, we see this time and time again. Uh, people who are highly engaged and active in politics are not a representative sample of the public. Never have been, never will be. Um, what seems to be one of the sort of repeated errors in politics is that those who are very highly engaged on a specific issue or in general tend to project their preferences and their priorities onto the much, much larger electorate that, that is not highly engaged uh, and that very often leads people to make uh, mistakes so i wasn't surprised at all i was saying from the outset that i didn't think it was going to have a big electoral impact and so far that's what all the polling has said as well so for Keir Starmer then does that mean that he can just sort of sleep soundly at night and and move on from this without having to make any major changes well i mean there are still plenty of reasons for him to have a sleepless night being a party leader is 
is no easy task. As I say, there are a lot of MPs whose unease about this current position is really not very much to do with its electoral implications and more to do with the kind of broader symbolic value uh, commitments uh, that they want Labour to, to be making and where they feel that the current Labour position isn't strong enough. And that includes Labour MPs who've been pretty loyal to Starmer thus far. So there is a parliamentary party management issue. More broadly, there is very evidently a significant part of Labour's activist base and of the highly engaged politically more generally who are very exercised about this issue. And at the moment, uh, Starmer has positioned himself at odds with many of those activists. That's a big party management issue too. So yeah, plenty of reasons for sleepless nights, just not any particular electoral reasons for sleepless nights, at least so far. What conclusions can we draw from who the rebels were last night in the Parliamentary Labour Party? Because there are the usual suspects, but it's a bit more complex than that, isn't it? Well, I was looking at this, and a few other people have been looking at this too, and I think there are kind of four factors which seem to predict rebellion. Um, one is being a member of the Socialist Campaign Group, so that's, that's the sort of largest organised group of the left in Parliament. Uh, a second is being a Muslim MP. A third is having a large Muslim constituency, uh, a large Muslim community in your constituency. And a fourth is being old. And so there's quite a few MPs who are in their 60s or 70s who may be retiring at the next election or, you know, even if they're not, probably don't think that there's a glittering and long ministerial career ahead of them. Uh, and perhaps that's encouraging some of them to sort of vote their, their consciences on this issue because the consequences are, are less serious. So it, it, uh, unusually for such a big rebellion, it's, it's, it's a, a set of demographic and constituency factors that seem to be driving this rather than, say, ideological or factional factors. Well, how unusual is that to see something, an issue like this, leading to this sort of action by politicians? I mean, it's highly unusual to have this many resignations from the front bench over an argument um, where um, the the kind of substantive implications in terms of policy are relatively um, limited. I mean, this is a lot of resignations. Labour isn't in government. Uh, the precise wording of its position doesn't really have a very broad impact given that both sides in the conflict are unlikely to really take much notice of, of what Labour's stance is on this right now. And I, I struggle to think of many examples of such a large number of resignations from the front bench over an issue like that. I want to switch focus to the troubles on the other side. How serious is the Tory mess over immigration? They managed to turn one of their best issues into one of their worst, haven't they? Well, I mean, the problem from day one with the slogan Stop the Boats is that was only going to really work as a plan if you could actually stop the boats. And so far, they haven't really found any effective mechanism for stopping the boats, exempting the deal they did with Albania, which did substantially reduce the number of Albanian uh, small boat refugees uh, or asylum applicants that were coming. Um, Rwanda was obviously a substantial part of this. Uh, the government was told repeatedly through the whole Rwanda process that it was unlikely to be effective, either as a deterrent or as a policy that could survive contact with the courts. They pressed ahead regardless, and now they have uh, spent £140 million and been left holding an empty bag. 
is this something that's going to to blow up further? I mean, they're already, you know, we have the, the the threatened rebellion, the focus now on on how you know some MPs want to try and contract their way out of international law with a kind of magical thinking sort of clause in the bill for this. I mean, how big a problem is this going to become down the line? Well, it is it is likely to become a substantial uh, internal problem first of all, because uh, we've just lost Suella Braverman or Rishi Sunak just sacked Suella Braverman as Home Secretary. Uh, she's already made it very evident that she's not going to keep quiet, and um, this issue is going to become a kind of rallying point for her and those who share her views within the Conservative Party. So I think we will see lots of further ructions on this, um, and <clears throat> we can also see evidence of a potential electoral problem for the Conservatives in that right now what they have achieved through their Stop the Boats campaign is they've got an awful lot of 2019 Conservative voters focused on immigration as an issue, but they haven't uh, made any headway in convincing those voters that they, they are actually a competent party to resolve that issue. That is a dangerous combination and means that they could risk losing further votes on their right flank uh, to Reform UK. There's some evidence for that in the polling we've had in the last few days uh, as well, because if you say immigration is a really important problem, but also that you haven't got a plan to solve it that anyone has any confidence in, well, people are going to defect from your party to parties who claim they have a better plan. I wanted to ask, ask you about that, actually, because Reform UK are not UKIP, are they? But are, are they a threat to the Tories? How organised are they on the ground? They aren't very organised on the ground, um, bluntly. Um, but they, they, I mean, while they aren't UKIP, they're very clearly a successor to UKIP. There's a, there's a very strong common heritage uh, there. Um, I mean, I think there's one reason to be um, sceptical of their impact and one reason to be worried about their impact. The reason to be sceptical is that their showing in the polls has not been reflected in their showing in local or by-elections so far when they've stood. Uh, so they've never hit the kinds of polling levels that we see them getting in the published polls when, when people actually have to come out and vote, which suggests that their polling status might be a bit inflated. On the other hand, the Brexit party, the Reform UK successor, did not stand candidates in any Conservative-held seat in 2019. That means every single Conservative MP in such seats knows if a Reform UK candidate popped up, that's a slice of the vote they had last time that they lose this time. And it doesn't have to be a very big slice for that to start causing a lot of them problems. Okay, Rob Ford, Professor of Political Science at the University of Manchester, thanks very much for joining us. Now, between reshuffles and resignations, we've barely had time to talk about this week's big economic news. We learned yesterday that Rishi Sunak has achieved his number one priority on his list of five priorities, which was to halve inflation by the end of the year. But for the Bank of England, whose job it is to keep inflation in line, it is not yet mission accomplished. Well, Bank of England policymaker Megan Green joined Bloomberg's Francine Lacroix this morning for her first TV interview since joining the committee. Let's have a listen to some of what she said. So I think that going from 10% inflation to 5% inflation was always going to be easier than going from 5 to 2%. In the UK, this is particularly the case, um, largely because energy disinflation has now mostly come through. Um, and so it will really be down to goods and services inflation that will need to come down. Um, that's going to be really tough. So the, the dramatic drop we saw in October is not really a surprise to anyone, given the energy price cap. Um, we won't be able to rely on that going forward. And so I 
think it will be a slightly tougher slog. Um, but we expect to get to our inflation target in the medium term. But does the jobless rate, for example, then need to be at you know 5.5 percent, even 6 percent, to to really get inflation down? Uh, unemployment um, will probably tick up from where it is right now. The labor market has been loosening. Uh, we've seen the number of vacancies come down. Unemployment's ticked up not as much as you might have expected if you're using previous cycles um, to go by. Uh, I think our forecast has unemployment going just above 5% by the end of the forecast period. Our goal is to bring inflation down to 2% in the medium term without causing unemployment to increase more than necessary. That's, that's a key priority. Uh, but we will need to see the labor market loosen more to see incredibly high wage growth come down. And, and I will highlight there are a bunch of different metrics for wage growth. They're all really high. Okay, so that's Bank of England policymaker Megan Green speaking to Francine Aqua a little bit earlier. And Fran's with us now. Uh, Fran, great to have you with us on the show. So Megan Green didn't sound quite as thrilled as the Prime Minister uh, somehow that inflation had come back down to 4.7% in the latest reading as well. It's not really as simple for the Bank of England, though, is it? What did Megan Green have to say about this? Yeah, I guess if you're on the MPC, so if you're a BOE member, your job is to worry. If you're the Prime Minister, your job is to say everything's okay and get votes. <laughs> so I think their lines Fair, is, is yeah. a little yeah. bit different. But right. Megan Green is really interesting because so she's one of the newest members of the MPC. Uh, she's an economist. She was for a long time in the US and she's voted for higher interest rates at each of the three MPC meetings that she's attended. And so she remains one of the BOE's hawks, meaning that she's worried that inflation is stickier, can remain higher than even you know some of the government projections. So we had this pretty lengthy conversation to try and understand, first of all, how much pain she thinks the economy has to go through to make sure that inflation is down. I remember, you know, if, if you're um, a household, you, of course, don't, you want to keep your job, you want to not worry about inflation. And so it's difficult also for a central bank to get this messaging out there that things could break or employment, unemployment has to be higher to make sure that inflation touches that 2% target. So for me, it was very telling that, you know, she thinks, first of all, that interest rates could probably go longer for quite some time Mm -hmm. or stay there for quite some time. And she really pushed back uh, this idea that we're going to see cuts anytime soon. I I asked her, like, the market's pricing in cuts middle of next year. And there was like silence. (laughs) And she said, I'm not expecting any cuts (laughs) anytime soon. That'd be a pause. So there's there's just quite a lot you know, more more pain that they may have to inflate to get inflation down. Yeah, really interesting to get this conversation with one of the people who set the UK's interest rates and the, and the first broadcast interview. What, what else did you say that, that stood out for you, Fran? Well, a- again, there's a couple of things that actually she's just very good at analysing. For example, productivity. For example, one of the things, you know, that you could do um, without pushing the economy in a recession is making sure that financial conditions tighten. That's one way also of playing around with interest rates. But she just thinks there's probably more to do. Now, she's on on the spectrum of the MPC. She probably worries more to the upside of inflation and everything else. And again, the idea is that if you don't get a handle on inflation now, then it looks like a policy mistake. So you'll have to tighten a lot more afterwards. So she was very thoughtful really um, also on market expectations. I asked her what she thought the communication of the bank should be. Are they talking to markets to make sure that they price it in? Or are they talking more to households to make sure that they know how much debt they're 
you know, taking on so that they can absorb the shock if, if there was one. The other thing um, that she was really interesting is that she was one of many, again, uh, from the MPC to to try and, and make under, you know people understand that the problem with the messaging right now is that it's not through messaging that you get inflation down. So people are still spending because the, the labor market is so tight. It's so it's a little bit of an odd situation for the UK economy right now. And part of that whole dilemma that we have about who takes the credit or the blame for interest rates and inflation. I mean, that's kind of very interesting to, to reflect on that idea of communication as well, because we've seen public criticism of the Bank of England putting up interest rates. And as you say, they're just kind of do, trying to do their job and bring inflation down. But Megan Green pointing out in that interview that, in fact, getting the inflation down from where it is now to under that 5% level, very politically important for Rishi Sunak, to the 2% level, which is what they want, is the tricky bit, essentially. Yeah. And, and if you look at inflation, I mean, this is a tricky thing, right? If central banks actually hike too much and put the economy in recession, this is no good for anyone. Mm. But actually, you could argue, which is why their only mandate is to hit inflation at 2%, that if inflation, um, you know, is higher than 2%, let's say 4 or 5%, which she says is a hard bit, getting from 4 or 5 to parents to 2%, then actually whatever you earn is, is not really worth it. So you're worse off almost with a higher inflation rate than you are with a mild recession. But she seemed optimistic that both can be managed. But of course, it's very tricky. Okay, Thanks so much for joining us. Of course, Fran's got her own pod in the city. Don't forget to download that as well um, while you're listening to us here. That's it from us for today. If you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe and give it five stars so other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. This episode was produced by James Walcock and Tiwa Adebayo. Our audio engineer was Marifal Hussain. I'm Ewan Potts. And I'm Stephen Carroll. We'll be back with more tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.